music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and it's the Hivecast. I'm hanging out right now with Michael Angelakos, is how it's pronounced. That's correct. Yeah. It's Greek, which is great. Yes, you very know. Greek. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, uh, well, I was born in New Brunswick, and I grew up in this town called Boundbrook, right. New Jersey. And by the way, can I just tell you that um, my daughter was born in New Brunswick. Oh, yeah? And I, um, you know, I used to DJ at a club there called The Melody for years. Oh, really? And the, and the Rutgers radio station, WRSU. So. Rutgers, yeah. And I know Boundbrook because, you know, I went to East Brunswick High School. That's where I grew up. So we'd play the Boundbrook in, you know, sports or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's how I would see the name. My dad was uh, mayor of Boundbrook. He was? For, uh, for a few years. Yeah, when my, before I was born, my, when my sister was born, uh, he was mayor and uh, he was in politics and stuff. Uh, for a while and then we eventually moved when I was 13 to Buffalo in high school I was basically in, in Buffalo and then I uh, I started living in Cambridge going to school and uh, yeah that was that and that's well, of course where you met the band guys too because they even though you were going to Emerson at the time right yeah they were all going to music school I was going to school for uh, media theory and criticism but I was still like producing a lot of music I was actually a uh, all my friends were in film, and, and so I would be scoring all their films and working on their, you know, I mean, I did a score for Edward Albee's Zoo Story. I did, I did tons of music, actually, and they all went to school for film scoring, yeah. which is the irony of it, but... Um, but you ended up doing the, getting the real work, and you uh, were going for something I know, else. it's the sad, the, sad, <laughs> the sad reality of music school. Is, yeah. Um, the truth of the matter is that you just kind of have to do it. Yeah. Uh, which is what we've all kind of, all of us have taken away from our experiences with school, but um, yeah, no, and I was in. I met the guys uh, through a mutual friend that was at the Berkeley. Uh, I was playing in a bunch of bands, like kind of playing whatever they needed, because I, I was the guy that could play keys or bass or whatever. And uh, eventually, I started after a pretty weird period. I started working with uh, electronic stuff, and I produced a bunch of songs. My friends all liked them, so I just kept playing them. And I played this one little show in the basement of our school, tiny little place. And uh, Ian was there just to hang out and hear it. And uh, I was literally using a Radio Shack microphone singing over these tracks in Ableton. (laughs) Uh, I'm laughing only because I remember my first home uh, thing of DJing. uh, I had a Radio Shack microphone, so I know what it's like when I was a little kid. They actually sound kind of good. They have a unique sound, right? So you can use it to your advantage. I think there's something endearing about like low fidelity stuff mixed with high fidelity. Yeah. But um, yeah, so so Ian and a friend was the, they were there, and, and Ian came up to me afterwards. They're like, "Listen, the song's really good. That was like a pretty weird, almost dismal performance. Uh, if you want to start a band and just like play around with the songs, let's do it." You know, and we hadn't really dabbled in the world of actual hardware synthesis, so um, I had a little bit, but I was I said no. I was reluctant. Because you were recording on your laptop, basically. At that yeah, point. And, I, and, and I was, and I didn't actually know how to like really work with synthesis yet. So I was mostly creating samples and stealing little like blips of samples and turning the waveforms and, into synthesizers through the sampling um, mechanisms. You know, so I, I mimicked a lot of synthesis, but I didn't actually know what I was doing. Uh, it was a trial and error thing. And then we, we got together and it took four months for us to come up with probably one of the worst live shows ever. And then you know, years of us trying to perfect that. And what happened was one friend asked me to, he was like, yeah, just put it on MySpace, but I've got your number on MySpace. 
And I was like, I, only emo bands do that stuff and like, you know, the Fueled by Ramen world. And I was like, I, I, I'm just gonna like have fun. And it's just for my friends. I just wanna do dance parties because we we're all, that was the 90s resurgence. So everyone was like listening to, you know, uh, all this R&B and, and stuff that we grew up with. And there was, there were dance parties actually happening again. So, but I was like, I can, I can kind of like infiltrate that and make my own music and be part of that whole party thing. And then it became this band, and our first show sold out, and everyone was singing the songs. And it's because I put the songs up online. And then when I put Sleepyhead out, all my friends were like, "Holy shit, this is awesome! Like, I love this song." And I was like, totally taken aback by it because I, d I didn't think anyone cared. But all it was so nice to hear my friends like going out and actually saying online, "You should listen to the song." And then next thing you know, you know. Um, my girlfriend's brother, who was managing us at the time, was like, um, do you know this label called French Kiss? They, they really like what you're doing. And there's then Polydor, and then all these labels started talking to us, and we had no idea what was going on. I, I certainly didn't, because uh, we were drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we were partying like you know kids at, in college. Yeah, and that's, that's, what you're, that's what you're supposed to do. Right, and, and I think that's what made it so, and that's what I find so endearing about the whole thing. It's like we stumbled upon it. We didn't try really hard. We still don't really try super super hard we have certainly had to try harder now that we didn't put yeah. in that effort then yeah so it's caught up with us but i love the fact that i can go back in time and look at those think about that era and think like how innocent it really was we weren't trying to be famous we weren't trying to do anything other than you know put on something uh, like a different type of show like a rock band playing electro pop really yeah and that was Something we had never seen, really. Cut Copy kind of does it, but it's still very automated and sequenced, and yeah. there's none of that going on with us. Like, we play everything. As sloppily as we may play it, we, we play everything. But it makes it a more exciting show. It's, ex it's more fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, our synths go out of tune just like guitars. You know, the whole thing is, is as, uh, as our, you know, I hate the word organic, but it, it is. It, it feels like a band. It, it runs like a band, and it uh, certainly falters like a band. So uh, I, I would rather have that then feel like you know every day it's just we're just playing pressing play on a laptop yeah it's amazing i wanted to ask you about that first demo you did with sleepyhead on it was that really for your girlfriend at the time Did you like yeah that's the most this is the hardest thing in the world to explain because it actually was a, a really funny little valentine's day because valentine's day is the stupidest holiday on earth yeah. right and so i didn't get her christmas presents i didn't get her birthday presents i, I was so bad this one year i was like totally i was having a lot of mood cycles and going through my whole thing and she was very supportive but I was a terrible boyfriend and I thought it'd be really funny if I gave her a Valentine's Day gift of all the you know the holidays of the year I'd give her a Valentine's Day gift but it was in the form of a, of a six song EP that did not actually include Sleepyhead and Better Things it included these two songs called Tons of Guns and uh, Batty Lashes and uh, I didn't really end up releasing them because they were so terrible and I couldn't find the files to go back and this is how little I cared about anything. I don't even know where the files are. I can't go back and actually... And I bet people have asked you if you could find that stuff and get a hold of it, right? We actually are going through all my old computers and um, hard drives trying to retrieve all the files right now. But a lot of them were, were not marked. I mean, you didn't label them. No, I, I've recorded... This is the problem, is that I don't take anything, I'm, when I'm doing something, I don't take it that seriously because I just, my output is so intense and, and, and every day it's always something. So I don't, like, I open up my computer today to show my friend this abstract or something we're working on and uh, I turn my computer on and I look down and there were over 38 documents open in text that it, none of them saved. They're all Untitled 29, Untitled 34, and he's just like, dude, you're going to lose all this. I was like, 
I don't know. I feel more comfortable feeling, you know, like yeah. the, the temp, something about like the, the temporary nature of everything and, you know, the fleeting uh, yeah. element of it. But uh, that's also just me being incredibly lazy. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, all that stuff is somewhere and I have my friends who know what they're doing trying to retrieve it. But at the time we couldn't master Sleepyhead. We couldn't master anything because it was just, I, I couldn't find the tracks. Yeah. But yes, it was a Valentine's Day gift, and it was a joke, and then somehow... How did she react to it? Well, she laughed, because because it was cause she and I loved like Prince and loved dance music, and it was basically because of her that I got into like making this kind of music, because we liked going to parties and dancing. And so that's kind of what made, you know, I was always writing pop music, but I never it was never so dance-centric, like stuff over 110 BPM or yeah. 105 BPM. So when... I gave it to her, she was like, you know, it was the songs she wanted to hear. They were just pop songs that you could dance to. And, you know, it was basically, you know, calling from all the artists we loved. And uh, she knew that all the songs were about her. And they were ba- it was a, basically an apology letter more than a Valentine's Day. Just because it had been a rough year for you, you were saying it. Yeah, but then again, I mean, every year has been kind of a rough yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so. you know what I mean? Like with you too, because at the time, like you're saying, when you, when you go through your other personal things, sometimes... You know, the people around you kind of feel the brunt of it, I know. Yeah. Relationships. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you made an apology. Also, you know, I was really immature. I was in school almost I was two years younger than her, and I was going through my own stuff. And that was when I was really dealing with a lot of my depressive stuff and starting to figure out my diagnosis. And she was the one that was always by my side through that. So I thought, felt like, well, here, here, start, here. That was the beginning of the whole, like, apologetic nature of Passion Pit. Are you still friends with her? I mean, Actually, yeah. She just graduated from law school. And uh, I always told her she should be a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm glad she actually did that. Um, we, we ended in a, you know, a relationship as friends. Yeah. And, uh, and now I'm married to a girl that I actually went to a party to meet. And I ended up meeting my ex- ex-girlfriend there instead of my wife now. Yeah. So it's funny so how... That's it, how that worked out, right? It's funny how it all worked <laughs> out. And I remember telling um, my ex-girlfriend that uh, you know I was getting married. And, and it was too my wife Christy and, and she was like I always knew that would end up happening because that was yeah. from day one you know I, it was what was supposed to happen yeah yeah but so in the, we, have a good, we have a good relationship yeah that's great on that journey it's amazing because like you said she was partially responsible for having you go in that direction and it was very much an accident that period yeah she should be uh, you know accredited in that sense but I, I feel as though you know at the time I certainly didn't know how to explain it because I you know, you, you gain a lot of insight as you kind of uh, go through the, the period of seeing all your records kind of sit and see how they actually, what their shelf life is. Yeah. And what they actually mean, you know, five, six years later. And uh, having that information now has been really, it's been really interesting to see how, I think the songs, I mean, are, production-wise are terrible, but uh, they, they're you know, they were in earnest. Like, I was, you know, I was really just trying to, connect with somebody and, and uh, I we're actually going to probably reprint uh, on vinyl chunk of change and manners and stuff yeah so. you got to do that I think it'll be great yeah well I have manners on vinyl right I mean it came out on vinyl yeah but we're going to re we're going to redo it with like a new packaging I think and yeah uh, well, you know how, it, like major, even, and I should say that like all labels try to, uh, you know, squeeze, they try to make as much money as possible because there's no money to be made really in the mechanical reproduction side of things. So the vinyls end up getting warped if they're not really cut properly for, 
you know, vinyl. So and you remaster them too. We are. We're, yeah. We actually are going to remaster everything. That's important. Vinyl. Yeah. Like actually cut it to vinyl. The yeah. way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. And hopefully 200 gram too, which should be fantastic. Great right? sounding, right? No, well, and it also stand the test of time because I don't think people really know how to handle records. Yeah. So the, really the heavier the record, well, we can go on and on about this, but. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> Sorry. So let's talk about manners too. And when you brought in, uh, you know, PS22 kids, how did that, you get connected to them? Did you see the stuff online or was, did that come after? The PS22, well, first off, I said that I wanted a kid's choir, and then um, Chris was racking his brain trying to figure out what we can use, because we didn't want something where it was like Sigur Ross kid's choir, where it was like really straight-laced. Um, you wanted to have some life and fun and bounce in it. Yeah, but we didn't know how to describe that to anyone uh, yeah. without sounding like assholes, and nor did we really know where to look for that, but all of a sudden someone saw someone showed us some youtube clip of those kids singing pop music and after it was an after school program yeah and uh and we were like oh my god we gotta see if we can work this out and for some reason uh it worked out and they took they got a half day off of school they came we bought them tons of pizza <laughs> and crazy. i ended up singing with them because my voice is so high and i was like trying to explain how parts to them i ended up just being like all right fuck it i'm just gonna i'm gonna I'm going to actually sing with all of you. And there's, there's, I found footage of me actually in the choir singing with a bunch of like, you know. Those little kids are like in second or third grade. Right? Yeah, yeah, really, really young. <laughs> and uh, that's when I, it really dawned on me uh, oh, uh, how high my voice can go. It's, it's more comfortable for me to sing with like that kind of choir. So. Yeah. But that was really, I don't know how we landed that. And now they're, they're doing everything. They sing with the White House. They sing with Beyonce. They've done, since Passion Bit, they have, exploded and it's all new kids now so yeah, yeah. but as, as it would be because they come and go from the school right? yeah we didn't really realize that until like two years later like we don't recognize a lot of these kids but the fact That's that it's such a it's such a thriving yeah that was that they were going to cut that program and then when when passion pit did that with them and then they started getting a lot of attention the school board couldn't you know do anything they were like yeah. they're really they actually were like okay this is actually an asset and we should yeah. keep this exactly because they would have really looked like bad bad guys bad people if they had cut that program then because there was a lot of eyes on them. yeah we didn't realize that we were part of something more political um but we're really happy because yeah. we got great takes with those kids i mean the reeling all the stuff that's just so good on its own isolated those yeah. those tracks sound yeah. like you hear the kids choirs that they sound yeah. crazy yeah. oh you mean as when you just break them down with the multi-tracks. Yeah, they sound crazy. Dude, I'd love to hear that sometimes. Yeah. Chris still has that stuff? Oh, yeah, we have everything. Yeah. And and, I, and we, were, we were like, wow. Like, I mean, what it was was really just emulating what I was trying to accomplish from day one. Try, I, I heard, like, the, I was watching tons of film, and there was, this, there was this one scene in a certain, I think it was probably a Truffaut film. Which and there, film? Uh, it, it wasn't 400 Blows. It was, uh, yeah. Um, Great film, by the way. Have you ever read that book? What? what? The Hitchcock book, Hitchcock Truefoot. Oh, the, the the interviews. Yeah. No, I haven't, but uh, you got to get those. I mean, they were yeah. mutual admirers, and uh, that's what it is. I'm gonna try and find my copy of it and lend it to you. Well, well, the thing was, was that like it was about how he approached children in his films, and there were there was this one scene where there are all these kids screaming in this uh, in this you know uh, city uh, like cement playground. And the saturation from the recordings was it was just so shrill and and kind of disgusting because it's like you know kind of jarring almost, um, and because 
something in the way that they recorded it, it clearly wasn't leveled out or whatever, the compression was maxed out. And I was like, I'm going to go and try to replicate that with my voice. So I layered and layered and layered my voice, and, and that's why you get that really squelchy, crazy, um, polarizing yeah. uh, sound from Chunk of Change and Manners. And it starts getting a little diluted through Gossamer, and I start singing more single-track stuff. But that was the original intention. So bringing in children made the most amount of sense for us. I mean, we thought, like... For it me, it was like so great with oh, the way the music sounded too. That know? and if people sing along, yeah. and you actually hear, and if you get like crowd mics and you can hear everyone singing along, it sounds right. It's supposed to sound like a, it's a communal participatory event, and that's yeah. so having children, having that kind of layering of vocals has always kind of almost insinuated like sing along here type thing yeah. when we play live. So it's from day one, it's always been like that. People have always sung along, and, and I thought the children's their their contribution kind of lended a hand in that so it's amazing for those people i mean i'm sure a lot of our listeners know about them but you know then after you got the attention for them they started singing more alternative songs like all of a sudden they were doing litsomania oh yeah phoenix like they changed their their repertoire they went from more pop to they started to say oh wait a minute like bjork i think they did a bjork cover i mean they they're very cool they're they're very cool and they and they they just because at the end of the day, if you break those songs down, it's all just pop, and yeah. I think that's really that's all they cared about was just what was fun and pop, and yeah. you know those kids really love. And if you see them, they like have their hands over their hearts and their you know their eyes are closed when they're singing. It's like it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's like, so know. pretty, and and I get like you know I I can't even believe yeah going back to that time, I wish I was a lot more with it because uh, that was such a monumental time for me as a producer and songwriter like having that ability and being in the studio with those kids so yeah it was great this is the Hivecast with matt pinfield speaking of covers you know you've done the cranberries dreams which i know and and the pumpkins tonight tonight what other things have you covered or do you want to cover if you get the opportunity and, and play with and change a bit, what kind of songs have you been thinking about? Yeah, um, well, I did a I did a layover from uh, Australia into LA, and I did do a, this show. I forgot for what radio station. Maybe like Triple J. Or it was like ninety eight point five, maybe or something like that. Oh, yeah. I was on the Highwood Tower or something. Yeah. And I was so screwed up. I had like a sinus infection, and I was you know the layover, and I was on antibiotics and all this stuff. I was so messed up, and I and I covered. Uh, in the neighborhood, I covered. Uh, I dreamed a dream. Yeah. <laughs> I covered. Um, I didn't know the movie was coming out. Yeah. Uh, and I covered. Uh, I think it's gonna rain today. Uh, by yeah. Randy Newman. But as a band, I think we're we're starting to work on a cover of "I'll Be There." Oh. Because my voice can, I can actually Michael sing Jackson. it. Yeah. yeah but I got the minus mixes that came out like I think after his death. Yeah. And they were they basically reduced it down to just like the guitars and the backing vocals and the, like the congas and like it's just a shaker and after that i was like we got to cover the song i think this is the one song we can cover that we've been talking about a couple of bands like uh the pesh mode or human league but i, I feel like that stuff is a bit obvious yeah. and i feel like and they're great records though but yeah i know what you mean though you want to do something different. well yeah i mean i was thinking about maybe doing yaz only you yeah, which is a beautiful song, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I love it, but we would do it more upbeat and try something. Yeah, 
can't make it different than the way that Allison and Vince did. There's it. certainly a yeah. There's certainly a, an expectation when you do an electro song and you're an electro band. So I wanted to make do something a little uh, off kilter. It's like Cranberries was kind of a left field one, and tonight tonight was for that Levi's thing, and we yeah. finally were able to release it on its own. But uh, I did that in like a day. Wow. I wish I had more time because I. He doesn't let anyone cover stuff. It took forever to get that through. And then I talked to him in Brazil. I was like, thank you so much for letting me cover that song. And one of the nicest compliments I've ever received was when he was like, that's one of the best covers anyone's ever done. And I grew up listening to Billy Corgan. He's, you know, I I have, I mean, Smashing Pumpkins were one of the first bands I was really into, like a contemporary band besides like Green Day or Oasis or Blur. So I was just... Which were all great bands too. Those were all your your favorites for. Those would be, I mean, after... I was obsessed with the whole Beatles and, and Beach, Beach Boys, yeah, especially we need, Beach Boys. We, we need to go back and talk about that, too, because I know that you as a kid loved the Beach Boys. I mean, it was a big thing for you, the Beatles, those records, the songs, the harmonies. How old were you when you first got exposed to it? And were you did you just become immediately hungry for those records? And Yeah, really, really, really young. Um, my parents were, I mean, they were very musical, and they, it was mostly actually a lot of uh, classical music earlier on in my life. And then, um, of course, I had no idea what was going on, but I, I liked it. But I always fell for the more like the Italian, like you know, Verdi or Puccini stuff that was very melodic. All the like the super melodist, like you know, any you know, Puccini was the master of that, or the Verismo, you know, yeah. singing. And I was in love with that stuff. But that came later after I really understood what was happening. But my parents, heard, I heard Barbara Rand somewhere, and I was like singing it. My parents. Heard me singing all the time by myself, and I would go to the shoe store and sing on these like boxes, and and uh, I just keep singing this old man and Barbara Ann. I didn't know the words; I just was making them up. Finally, my parents got me this karaoke machine with one side was a uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett or whatever, and the other side was all the Beach Boys surf songs. And so I learned those songs back and forth. Like I I, I wanted to be a Beach Boy so badly, and then my neighbor eventually got me Pet Sounds. This was when I was like four or five. And, Amazing to hear that. And I and I just like, but I got it, and I loved. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a Beach Boy so badly, and uh, that was when it happened. Was like, and then obviously my dad showed me Abbey Road, and I got really into those because you know, I will. They're all lullabies. They are. And and when I think about my music today, I was like, I can. It can be reduced to a lullaby, like Sleepyhead, or you know, um, uh, even even. Uh, carried away. Um, say, yeah. They're all lullabies. Yeah. Paul McCartney songs, you know, like they're just very sweet little melodies and um, earworms. And uh, there was something about Beach Boys that just totally took over my life. And uh, they've never gone away, obviously. And Brian Wilson is my, you know, obviously one of my idols. And yeah. Have you gotten to meet him yet? I haven't. Uh, I might have a chance to, though. Yeah. So hopefully I will. I'm sure you will. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Fingers crossed. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a very nice man, and he's written some, so many incredible songs over the years. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it goes yeah, without saying. Yeah. It just goes without saying. Yeah. You know, somebody asked me the other day about, <laughs> I did, you know, I said, oh, you know, one of my favorite songs on Pet Sounds is I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. It's just beautiful the way it breaks down to the whole record. Have you heard, have you, you've heard all, like, the, 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 the re-release with the sessions where you hear yeah. the isolated vocals? Yeah. It just wouldn't it be nice is probably one of the most heart wrenching songs. It is, and I, uh, I, I don't know that. I mean, all of his music, you know, Surfer Girl, I think is one of the, like 
the best songs ever written. Did you, did you sing like when you were a kid, like Warmth of the Sun and In My Room and those songs too? In My Room, yes, but not, In My Room is, you know, he, they, that was one of the first songs they actually wrote, I think, yeah. wasn't it? And they were all sitting in their room together with an organ and the guitar and then they song. showed it to their mom and uh, and their mom was like, you know, oh, well, that's really pretty. <laughs> Can you imagine just like writing that song and, and your mother being like, ah, oh, that's a good song. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's great. Um, and you know, let's talk about Gossamer now too. Sure. I mean, how much time, Michael, in between, you know, making the records? Like, what was different about recording Gossamer for you? Was it in the process? Well, it was it was precedented. So, like, I had this idea of going into a studio and finishing an album concept in my head. Yeah. And that was obviously very skewed because at the time of, like, you know, manners, I had uh, I was so out of it to begin with. Um, because you were dealing with those struggles, you know. Yeah, and I was also like self-medicating because I didn't know how to handle it, and um, so that probably is the main factor there. But uh, but with Gossamer, it was very much like you know we toured the hell out of Manners. We toured for over two years, and you know I had never just split myself down the middle like that between the creative side and the skill set side, and turning off the creative side for that long really. And then trying to access it again at a point in time when you're already going through like tumultuous things like, you know, uh, reclaiming a relationship or trying to figure out things with your family or just growing up. I don't know. And uh, I just, it was really hard to just, you know, turn on the creative part of my brain. Although I had been kind of having all these ideas. But the moment that, it's kind of like the green light, red light thing. If once the red light goes on and you're in the studio, it freaks people out. That's why they got rid of it, really. Yeah. And in my head, that kind of happened. The red light went on. And, and I think that made me overthink the whole process of making a record. I, I wrote, like, way too many records in my head. And I wrote a lot of songs. And it took me forever to figure out what I wanted it to sound like. And on top of that, I, you know, after our arduous, laborious process, you know, these processes in, in the studio with different producers and things like this, trying to find what worked. I talked to uh, Rick Rubin, who's always been a really good friend of mine, and he, he finally was just like, dude, just go home and make it, make the music the way you've made it before. Like, he's always been the guy that's just been like, go do your thing on your own and come to people afterwards. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would bring him songs and he would give me homework assignments. Just go finish that on your own and come back. That type yeah. of thing. But he never officially produced anything, but he was the guy that basically was like, go home, and, and figure it out. I was out in LA for a while and it was to, to no avail. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, what happened was I had this terrible manic episode uh, in between the record because I was, had time off. The, the label wasn't really, they, they were like, you need some time off, go write and chill out. What that really equated to was you have time off, i.e. we're not gonna fund anything and you go do your thing and figure it out and when you're ready, come back to us with a song not how I work. So I started drinking and getting really, you know, uh, out of hand. And I had a, this two month long manic episode. And when I came down and finally everyone realized that I was actually having a manic episode, uh, I had to piece together what had happened. And so, you know, Chris and Alex, uh, Chris Zane and Alex Aldi, who produced the record with me, they were like, you got to quit drinking. And you got to get back on the schedule and we're going to record the record here in New York and we're going to do this, 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 and this. And they, they scheduled everything and we, they made it work. 
And they were the ones that got me to quit drinking. They were the ones that got me to, uh, well, for the, you know, that time. And I went to my doctor and she was like, oh my, you know, I hadn't seen her in two months. And I, she thought I was doing fine and she was freaked out. Everyone was so freaked out. And I pieced together what had happened over those two months and was horrendous. It was probably one of the most depressing things ever. That's what Gossamer is about, actually. Yeah. Piecing together this one very crazy, tumultuous uh, period of my life. And... Uh, putting together this web of things and people and I I, had to, I I relied on my friends, my wife, everyone to kind of recount what had happened and there's nothing scarier than sitting back on, you know, sitting down and talking to someone telling you what you did and it's like another person. So. Yeah, I've been there, I understand. What yeah, it's like. so <laughs> so I, I wrote a record about it and the record is, I mean, my friends, the closest friends would, would tell you it's, it's as real as it gets. Like, those are straight up actual conversations I had those are uh, it's a very excruciatingly painfully honest record but uh, I got it out of my system and, and it was therapeutic in that way it still it. is you know I mean I, I'm very proud of the fact that I made myself vulnerable and went out on a limb and tried it and did that but uh, it is a it's a it's a tough thing to do for anyone so Absolutely, it is, uh, Michael. I just, uh, I'm really happy that you're doing great and you're, you're doing well. And, thank you. You know, how long have you been married now? Uh, we got married uh, in December, so a few months, and uh, it's, it, it's, you know, marrying a musician on on tours. Uh, I, I feel, it's, it's a mixture of like feeling really bad, but like you kind of knew what was going on anyway. It's so. like you knew what you were getting into, right? But. You know, that still makes you, you still doesn't take it. away how, you know, how, yeah. So it's, I'm still apologizing. So yeah. I use the Passion Pit as my vehicle for apologizing, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that's what Gossamer was, especially for her, because I dedicated that record to her. That was really about how a person can keep you uh, going. Uh, I've never experienced anything like that. And she's the reason why I'm alive and she's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today. And, and, uh, she's always been my, you know, a great partner in life. And, uh, is it easy? No, you know, yeah. it's never easy, but, um, that's the greatest thing is like, I got Gossamer out of my system and now I'm, I'm excited to make a, a record that's warm and loving and a bit more about settling down and, and being an adult. Um, and we'll see how that happens. I think that should be really interesting. So, I think it'll be great. Well, Michael, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for talking with me. It's always good hanging with you. It really is. I love talking music with you. It's Michael from Passion Pit on the Hivecast. I'm Matt Pinfield, and thanks for listening. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.